Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello fans of Shook Lestan and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you? Hello. I am... So when we're talking about today's guest, we're going to talk about Malta. And I know somebody else from Malta who was my sewing teacher. When I tried to learn how to sew as an adult, I, I failed miserably. Let's just, I've got a bag and half a skirt. But anytime anyone mentions Malta in my head, I hear her saying, no, 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 not seam allowance. You, you did not measure for the seam allowance. <laughs> so thankfully, our guest today was so incredibly lovely and has wiped out my Maltese trauma. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, why don't we just get right to it? We talk a lot about getting more nations involved with sports and how the IOC wants to get more nations involved with sports and especially smaller nations or nations in regions that particularly don't have a sports culture at the Olympics or Paralympics. So for a nation to be at the Games, they need to have a national governing body in the sport. But what does it take to start one? Today, we are talking with a skeleton athlete, Shannon Galea, who has dual citizenship with Canada and Malta, and who founded the Maltese Bobsleigh and Skeleton Federation with hopes of qualifying for the Olympics. Take a listen. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. We met you in Beijing at the Paralympics, but you almost were there for the Olympics as an athlete. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. Yes, it's quite interesting. So I this year I was I was an Olympic hopeful in the sport of skeleton. And it all started about four years ago when I started to look at the sport and think about is it possible for me to qualify it and what does it take to to get there? And as a dual citizen, um, Canadian and Maltese, I wanted to know what it would take to consider doing it for my second nation because they don't have the sport, they don't have a winter sport culture. And so I looked further into things and connected with the Maltese Olympic Committee to see if there was any sort of club that had winter sport or had skeleton and bobsleigh. And they, they responded with, we've never had anyone do the sport. And so while I was here in Canada, I connected with a lot of sliders and bobsledders in the community here. And asked how does a country go about doing something like this and, and what are the steps and I had done like talent ID camps here in Canada and considered the Canadian pathway but I was so far long gone that journey because I was playing professionally in softball and that's where I put my focus and I was getting to an age where in the Canadian system I wouldn't have been looked at and so I, I kind of wanted to go about it a unique way and show people, you know, what it's like to start a sport and to still compete in sport at a high level, regardless of your age and, and where you're at in your journey and just how you can develop a sport and develop as an athlete at any stage. And so a lot of people in the sliding community 
directed me towards small nations. And they said, well, your second nation is, is considered a small nation. There's lots of programming available through the International Federation, which is the IBSF. And you might be able to find some opportunities there. So after connecting with the IBSF, as well as the Maltese Olympic Committee, you know, I got some ideas as to how this could come about and what are those necessary steps to go forward with. And after great deal discussions with the Maltese Olympic Committee, they trusted me with a lot of the intentions I had because I had done a lot of work in softball previously by bringing international coaches to the community, developing the sport, representing the nation through the European Cups in that sport. So, you know, I kind of had the upper hand in the sense that, you know, I've done it before. Why can't she do it again? And so I took some time to look at what was needed to start something within Malta first, because in order for an international federation to essentially establish you, you have to be established in the nation first as a club or as a as a sport organization. And so that took a lot of back and forth and connecting with people in that sport community as to how those things work. And so I kept getting turned around a lot because at one point I needed a Maltese lawyer to notarize the policies and and to obviously push it through the system to become an official club under the Maltese Olympic Committee. And then what I did is I started to look at, you know, what do we do here in Canada? And since I work for the Canadian Olympic Committee, It's been the past four years that I've been working for the COC, and I've learned from a lot of sport leaders that I'm surrounded by each day who are just inspiring and so helpful in learning and and growing from. And, you know, it was kind of a great way for me to understand and adopt a lot of the structures that we have here and sort of find a way to implement it and share with another nation. And so I I started looking at some of our best national sport organizations here in Canada and how they're organized and what policies are in place, what are some key initiatives that you need to consider when you're starting an organization. And policies and starting an organization on, on its own is one thing. The other step I had to really get over was, can I see myself going down a sheet of ice at 140 kilometers? So that took at least a good year to really assess and to really thoroughly think about because I'm an older athlete. <laughs> I'm in my 30s. There's a lot of different priorities that come at this age, like career and family. And I kind of had my sport experience with softball, but this was more so to see what I could do to start something for a small nation who's looking to get exposure in winter sport, like our, our friends of the Jamaican bobsled team who similarly did the same thing, and now their program has blossomed. So I kind of just wanted to see what it was like to be on the other side and to see what could come of it. And partly because I was very well connected to a lot of Maltese athletes in different countries that I had competed in for softball. So back in the 1970s and 80s, a lot of Maltese citizens fled the country because of the government being unsettled. And so a lot of citizens either immigrated to Australia or moved to Canada. And a lot of my family members split and went to, I have half my family in Australia and some of my family in Canada, and there's pockets of Maltesers everywhere. So there's definitely like a really cool recruitment strategy that could come of this eventually. 
So that was kind of the first steps that I took was there's the policy and, and the establishing side to the story, but there was also the work on the ground physically where I had to, the training part, like going to the gym and, and keeping fit, that stuff was relatively easy for me because I'm a phys ed teacher. I'd always maintained my fitness after I retired from softball. It's always been a big part of my life and I like to coin it as training for life. I don't think I'll ever give up my fitness, but obviously when you're looking at a sport like this, it becomes very specific again. So your training does transition to a little bit of a different level. But once I had moved back to Canada, I started to take some trips to Whistler, took a trip to Calgary to go to the ice house to learn what does this sport even look like? Because when I had done the ID camps here in Canada, the biggest flaw I wanted to share with some of the, the Canadian NSO here in Canada, the bobsleigh and skeleton Canada, was, you know, you go to these ID camps and they give you a squat test, they do your sprint test, they do all these fitness tests, but there's no true attachment to the sport. There's no culture. So as an outsider, I thought, well, I can put up these numbers and get a coach and bring my numbers down for whatever level you need them to be at. But I don't even know if I could physically see myself go down a sheet of ice. Like there's, there was that element missing and the accessibility to the sport is extremely challenging, especially even as a Canadian athlete. All of our athletes in the sport tend to live in the West Coast. Anybody from Ontario and Quebec will have to eventually relocate because the access to the facilities are out West. So athletes who are born, raised in Calgary have the ice house. They have the exposure to the sport. They can easily train and see themselves at a much earlier age try the sport. And Typically, with the way they recruit in this sport in Canada, it's called a second-generation sport. So athletes who retire from collegiate sports and don't pursue the professional route often go into doing these ID camps because it's their last shot at maybe considering their Olympic dream. And for me, it was just a... I was ready to leave softball. I had my fun. I played to the highest level that I, I played and played here nationally in Canada. And I was just happy with my journey. And we were out of the Olympics up until Tokyo, even up until 2017, 2018, we weren't in the Olympics. So my Olympic dream shifted immensely at an earlier time in my life because I knew that playing internationally was going to give me that fix and it was going to give me a much more, I'd say in a lot of my teammates who played on Team Canada, they sometimes would say, Shannon, you did it right. You went overseas and you lived in different cultures. You learned the languages, you grew the sport, you got to develop it. And so I learned a lot through all that experience about sport development, sport structures in different countries, how they funnel their pathways from the school system to the collegiate system to their national team programs. And I got to experience that in all the different nations I played in, but then always reflected back to how awesome Canada has it in, in some of the structures that we have here and the programs that we implement. You know, we're not perfect. There's so many things that we're still continuously working on as a nation. And so are many other countries. There's always a new initiative or a new way to look at sport from holistic perspectives. And I think that's what continuously lights my fire. And so that's that's where my Olympic dream kind of put on pause. And, you know, I always would tell those girls, just you wait. You guys are going to be wearing the maple leaf in the Olympics. And you guys are the true athletes who held on to the dream in a much more unique way. I just decided my Olympics were going to be a little bit different. 
<laughs> and that's kind of how I framed it. So why skeleton as opposed to all the other Olympic sports? I mean, <laughs> yeah. there was a snowboarder from Malta. There was an alpine skier. So there's lots of individuals yeah. that you could have chosen. It's so funny. So the girl, Janice, the snowboarder, she is from California. She started her journey eight years ago. It's funny, you know, looking at those sports. And, and then there's Elise, who's the skier. I spoke with her. It's a very small winter sport community on the Maltese side, as you can see. And for me, it was just where I was in my life. There was a, an easy transfer of skills for me to go into skeleton. I was a pitcher in softball. So the mental components of focus and just putting yourself in this state of mind, I knew I had, and I knew I could bring that to the track. I pick things up easy. I know how things should feel like biomechanically. I'm quite sound. The only thing that was going to be a challenge for me was the sprint at the start. And that's a big component to the sport. Um, sprinting bent over is like the most awkward thing I've ever experienced. I'll never forget my first ice house session and I still have the videos and they haunt me a little bit cause they, I looked like Bambi on ice. Cause you have these little spikes on, you know, your cleats with spikes and you're pushing this heavy sled for the first time. Your core and your body is just so out of sync because you're just running on ice for the first time. And then I also kind of had a, a misunderstanding to what the whole sport was about when it came to going down a track and feeling pressures and feeling the speed. I thought you're on a sled and you're planking. And I thought I do core workouts all the time. I can plank for days. Let I can do this sport. No problem. And my first time down the Whistler track, I looked like I was so stiff as a board. I'll never forget it. And my coach was like, Shan, are you planking down the entire track? And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm holding it together. I'm, I'm making sure I'm getting good core stability in and I'm, you know, managing the track as best I can. He's like, no, 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 it's actually the opposite. Like you have to relax into the sled. And I thought that's insane, but it makes sense. You really do have to relax in the saddle. It's like yoga on a cafeteria tray. That is my coined statement that I share with everybody when they ask, you know, what does it feel like? And it really does feel like yoga on a cafeteria tray because your breathing matters in towards how you handle those pressures and how you handle the corners and how you steer eventually once you build your skills and you work your way up the tracks. Because some tracks you'll start at lower points just because it's for safety and because you're new to the sport, you need to learn just what certain speeds feel like into those pressures. Malta had had Winter Olympians before, but what's it like when you knock on the door and say, hey, I'd like to represent you in the Winter Olympics? Yeah, I well, it takes a lot of, it took a bit of convincing because I don't live in Malta. I'd say that my biggest connection that I had was the work that I had done in softball. And I had um, some of the community members vouch for me in the work that I had done. And because I brought NCAA coaches, professional athletes to Malta to grow the sport, we even created a partnership with the Italian team so that when we went to the European Cup, we were under two nations called the Mediterranean team. Mediterraneo essentially is what we were called. And that was essentially to help, you know, there was a small pocket of athletes from Malta to get exposure to that level. 
And so they went to their first European Cup and we ended up winning the European Cup. It was the lowest, it was the C, so they have A, B, and C. But winning at the lowest level meant that they were getting more funding. There was going to be more opportunities to connect with other nations in their softball programs. And so when I went to connect with the Maltese Olympic Committee on this idea, I actually had to do a lot of my homework. And and so I wrote policies because I had gotten information from the international side, you know, how an organization should look when it comes to the statuettes. And the statutes are what is written in your policies, and that's what the IBSF looks for. So I was able to model other nations and what they had done, but I also brought in the Canadian context because I just felt like that Canada is a world-leading sport nation. A lot of our structures and our policies are well-respected around the world. And so I used, and I've said this before, I used Volleyball Canada. I looked at some of their policies and their codes And I matched it to what I think it was the Jamaican bobsled team and Volleyball Canada. And I kind of mixed the policies together, made sure that our official name is the Maltese Malta Bobsled and Skeleton Federation, and was able to look and review each of the policy statements so that it reflected not only what's expected at the international level, but also what's respected or needed in the Maltese sport community and then adopt those Canadian sport values that I felt were really important. And that was making sure that the WADA code was included, making sure that anything with equity, safe sport, um, any anti-discrimination policies were included into that piece. And that was very important for me to consider because I wanted to make sure that it was done right from the start. So once I had all that stuff written, I shared it with the Maltese Olympic Committee and they reviewed everything. And the president at the time, his name was Joseph Kassar. And we sat down, we had a few meetings and he he was amazing in the whole process. He ended up helping pay for some of the fees that go into paying for federation at the Maltese, in the Maltese sport community. I think it's like 300 euros. And that's where the lawyers and policymakers officialize everything. Once he had done that, then we had to go to the IBSF and I think they do what's called executive committee meetings and they call it EXCO. And I think they happen every year after a season, typically around now till June, they have a meeting placed in there. And that's when they, they approve new nations who are looking to take part and participate in the sport. And so I think it was like May 2020. I had finally sent all the paperwork off by, I think it was the fall of 2019. So COVID hadn't happened. I was going to some training camps in Whistler, but I was still also like, you know, not all in because it, I mean, I was in the sense that I was taking all the opportunities I could when it came to training camps, but I also like didn't have a federation. So I I didn't want to just, you know, I'm 30 at this point, I was 32 years old. 31 years old. I I wanted to make sure that I was investing in it right when I knew it was going to be legitimate. So I kept my training up. I would go to the tracks when I could. As an international, technically, I was still able to pay some of my fees as a Canadian because I technically didn't have a nation established yet. So the coaches were really kind in keeping me as a Canadian development athlete, which was helpful because it gets very expensive and because I don't live in the West Coast you know I was flying out to Whistler 
renting equipment, training out there, working remotely when I could. So there was a lot of moving parts this whole experience. And then once COVID happened, the executive committee had their final meeting. It was obviously heading into the Olympic season. We were in the second year of the quad. And it was the year where you really have to get a lot of races under your belt to get exposure and experience on the tracks. If I didn't have that season, I mean, my Olympic journey would have probably ended right there. I mean, it essentially did in a lot of ways with COVID. Um, It made the access to tracks challenging. Being new to the sport, you're still understanding how a lot of things work on the organizational side and the admin side, let alone adding in the layer of COVID to do all your testing, all the protocols, and it varied country to country with what those protocols were. And then you had to worry about just getting down the track safely. (laughs) So... There was just so much taken on. But that May of 2020, we officially got the email from the IBSF that Malta has been welcomed into the sliding sport community. And it was really exciting because it was obviously the start of this Olympic journey and the qualification period had to start, which meant I needed to get what was called a 532. And that is the rule for any athlete to qualify in sliding sports. You have to be experienced. You have to have five races on three different tracks within two years before the Olympic Games. So it eliminates countries coming in in the last year and sandbagging their way into the Olympic Games. And it's it's a fairness thing. It's saying, I've been connected to this sport and I've been invested as a nation. You're taking part in those races and participating and, and being a part of the community. And there's still a lot of things that I still wasn't able to do to officially make myself feel a part of the community. You know, I I got to really get to know a lot of the athletes this year because I was training so much in Canada due to COVID. There was no real connection to other athletes from other nations leading up to the games in that first year. And those connections are extremely important because small nations tend to pair up with smaller nations or they pair up with bigger nations to get that support. And I only had so much networking abilities because of just the access. So a lot of work. (laughs) So here in the United States and for you in Canada, we think of the Olympic Committee as something very large, very complex, very corporate. And you just kind of called the Maltese Olympic Committee. What does that actually look like? How many people is that? What's the what's the office like and how is yeah. that relationship? <laughs> yeah. I could honestly say that working for the Canadian Olympic Committee would have been a big help in that connection. It was great. You know, I only knew the president and I think one other lady who's in the education space. And because I was a phys ed teacher and I had done work in the sport development space, I was able to kind of show and explain, these are some of the ideas that I have for you. And it was more like a pitch. It was, this is what I can offer for you. These are some of the ideas I have. I would love to help in any way I can, essentially. I don't know how big the Maltese Olympic Committee is, but I do know it's quite small and it's volunteer basis. So a lot of these smaller nations, when we go and we look at an Olympic Games, you know, we see the prestige and what these nations put out to get their athletes there. But behind the scenes, some of these nations are organizationally very, very small, and the administration is very taxing. And they're the ones leading sport initiatives in their country. 
And what's also fascinating from what I learned when I connected with Joseph to understand how it's because each Olympic committee is either attached to their government. There's obviously some sort of relationship to their their government or they're self-funded and privately funded. And that's what I've, I've learned, obviously, working here at the Canadian Olympic Committee. There's a lot of influence from our government. And that's how most nations operate, because that's where that additional funding comes from. And in Malta, because it's volunteer basis with maybe some stipends, I I can't really speak to that because I don't know entirely what that is. But I do know that some of the committee operates on a volunteer basis. And there's a disconnect when it comes to the education system. So when I had done a lot of work in softball there, I had learned that a lot of kids don't have sport or physical education in their timetables in school. And I think that that's a challenge no matter what country we're in, even in Canada. If I had it my way as a teacher, the kids would be outside learning. And I mean, obviously not in the winters. <laughs> well, actually, no, they should be. The win- you got to celebrate winter. If you're Canadian, you're going to be celebrating winter. But we don't, our kids aren't playing enough. And that's quite inevitable in a lot of nations. And in Malta, because tourism, it's an island nation, tourism is the biggest driving force of the industries over there. So when summer comes, forget sport. Kids are not doing organized activities. They're very connected to their family and they're going on holidays or they're contributing to the tourism industry. And so it's one of those things where you think you want to make change, but you can't just come in here thinking this is what's needed when you really don't know culturally how that country operates and where the gaps are. So it was a bit of a learning curve for me because I'll never forget, I went to my first camp with these kids for softball and I had I thought they were on a different level I had no idea what their experience was so I had all these drills planned I had tons of activities and I had to scale back completely on my plan like I they were out the window actually we had to work on fundamental movement skills how to stretch how to run we did some softball but I almost wanted to just throw all the gloves in the air and say we're not touching a softball you guys need to learn how to run properly And it was eye-opening to see just the amount of skills missing in the early years. And it's not to say that they're at fault. It was just a cultural difference that I had experienced and was exposed to. And, you know, there's some things here in Canada. I come from the province of Ontario. That's where I teach. Who knows what COVID has done now to those skills? I, I couldn't even really tell you, especially with teaching virtually. There's a lot of gaps in those fundamental movement skills. And that's where my first sight of learning how, you know, sport is implemented into the Maltese community. And I still don't have a full grasp on it, to be honest. And, and that's what this whole initiative was supposed to be about, was to hopefully bring some sport organizations together into creating a pathway for athletes to get into winter sport, connecting with the track and field clubs. Formula One racing is big and race car driving in, in Malta is quite big. And they're actually known to be, I spoke to the the Jamaican bobsled team coach. He said, if you want athletes to get into the sport, don't always look for the sprinters. Look for the drivers too, because a big piece of this, there's the fear part that you have to get over, but there's also this innate understanding of pressures and how to drive under these pressures that isn't taught in a sprint <laughs> and other skills, right? So 
it's a whole other headspace. And I think that's what's been so fascinating about transitioning from softball to a sliding sport where it's, you know, you got to make it down alive, essentially. So it's quite a unique mindset to get into. How familiar were you with Malta before you, you started this process? Did you speak the language? Had you visited there many times? I know you said you did softball drills, but even before that, had you traveled yeah. there as a child? My first trip to Malta was in 2012. I didn't visit as a kid. My dad immigrated when he was immigrated to Canada when he was eight years old. And once my sister and I were born, he spoke the language, but would never, ever teach it to us, partly because he was ashamed of the language and what it did to his transition to Canada. It held him back in school by a year. And so he didn't want that to happen for us if we were picking up another language. You know, his mindset now towards languages has definitely changed because we see the benefits of being bilingual. But it's also a very, very particular language. It's not like German or French. It's a language spoken on the island. So it's, it wasn't going to really benefit me, but it would have been nice to have been connected to my grandparents and extended family differently through language. And it's such a phonetic language that even now there's a big fear in the community that youth in Malta are speaking less Maltese because of the last country to occupy Malta was the British. And so English is very easily spoken there. Um, and because it's so easily spoken, a lot of youth are not really picking up the Maltese language as much. They're speaking more English than Maltese. So it's going through a bit of transition and, and it's become a bit of a fear in their community to, because they think it might become a lost language in decades to come because it is a very challenging language. It's Italian, Spanish, French, and I want to say Arabic, all mixed in one. It's insane. And I had no idea as a kid that that was what the language was. And even when I told people, you know, as a kid, you're sharing show and tell about who you are. And I always thought it was just a fun thing to share because no one ever knew where the hell it was from. <laughs> like, see that little island underneath Sicily? Yeah, that's where I'm from. And and it was always interesting to me to to realize how unknown the place was and how remote it was. And so, you know, I learned a lot about my culture through my, my grandparents because they were European snowbirds. They would stay for part of the Canadian summer. And when they come home after six months, you know, they were speaking fluent Maltese. They would bring home all the food and our family celebrations were always about food and probably why I'm a big foodie still to this day. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's quite fascinating to understand where you come from and, and as you get older, how your connection to it can really open your eyes. So my first trip, yes, was in 2012. And I pretty much went back every year once a season, whenever I was playing softball over there, I'd always do a quick trip to visit my, my Nenu, who was my grandpa. And we would travel together and we would do little trips on the island. And I was probably one of the only grandkids who really spent a lot of time traveling with him. Other family members had done big trips once in a while, but I was the one that consistently, you know, at Christmas time, he would nudge me and he's like, where are we going next time whenever I was in Europe? So he was my little travel buddy. And gosh, the guy could stay up so late. All those elderly people in Malta, like they party <laughs> crazy. <laughs> 
<laughs> I can't. I was like falling asleep at eleven o'clock, and my nanny was still celebrating. The feasts are a big thing over there through the churches. And another thing is religion is a big part of the culture over there. So again, these are things that like you come and bring your Canadian values over to another country. And, you know, you think you can implement certain things that you feel are going to be good for them, but it's just culturally different. And so it takes time to build a new sense of awareness and educate. I think it's education first and foremost. And that's a piece that I still don't fully have an understanding on because I get different stories from different community leaders on on how those timetables work with sport and I could definitely tell you the gender equity in sport over there is quite low. I'll never forget, I went to this water polo match with my cousin, and she's a big sport advocate over there. She coached the netball national team, and she played water polo. So she was a bit of an athlete herself, and a big reason why I got so connected to sport over there was through her. We went to the men's national water polo team game, and it was like the finals. And, you know, the whole city was in watching this game. The stands were just flooded with people. And it was cool. It was a great experience. It was like my first, like, cool national sport experience in, in Malta. And then she's like, yeah, my game's tomorrow. And we get to do the same thing that the men do. So the winning team wins, like, a tour bus. And they get to go around the entire city and celebrate and honk the horn. And they get a party. And the streets are flooded, right? So it's a big celebration. It's like football in Spain or something. Next day was her match and her team won. They got a bus, but not one men's player from the same club came out and watched the women's team compete. And it just really, really showed the gap in female sports over there and and the exposure. I mean, that's in a lot of countries now that it's become a big thing in the media nowadays it's great to see women's sports are leveling up but it was even far worse in malta than than i'd ever seen so it was really interesting to to be exposed to that when you say you have to start a club for sliding sports what does that look like in a country that doesn't have a sliding track that doesn't really have snow what what does that club do You have to attach yourself to a track, whether it's in Canada or internationally in Europe. You can create it, like I think for me, because I established the Maltese Skeleton and Bobsleigh Federation, it gave me a little bit more flexibility in accessing other tracks. But the IBSF has a lot of development programs available, but you can't access those programs until you're established under a nation. Because then you get funding and support through the IBSF to help you get coaching through the small nations coaching initiative that they have. They allow you to get accommodations paid for and ice time paid for. So there is a great deal of support that they offer. But unfortunately, with COVID, when it happened, I was given, I think, 5,000 euros to help my first season and I got another additional 5,000 for the second season but it goes fast like by the time you pay a hotel flights and track time and race fees like you might get two races out of that plus your equipment equipment is like what determines almost your success in this sport it's another a whole other field of learning when it comes to equipment and how it works on the track and how it works for you as an athlete. So when it comes to starting a club, it's more so about 
doing the learn to slide sessions in a place that has a track. And then once you get that experience, the sliding sport community is quite small, so you could easily get connected to the right people who could direct you to those contacts on taking those next steps. It's, it is quite small, I would say, especially when it comes to the European side of it, which I, I didn't get to get experience until this year. So if I was living in Malta, my home track would I ideally be probably Eagles in Austria. It's probably one of the best tracks to learn on. It's known as a gliders track. And it's actually one of the first tracks that I feel like everyone would love to learn sliding because it, it really does feel like you're tobogganing on your belly. And it would be a nice, easy way to like expose somebody new to the sport. Whereas me, I learned on Whistler and it's the fastest and the most aggressive track in the world, but it is the best track to learn on because you learn all the technical skills that you need to tackle any other track in the world. So there's a bit of give and take in terms of what you get your first taste of experience on. So when I went to Eagles this year, I was like, oh, this would have been so nice to not have as many bruises <laughs> leading up to the games. But it, it is a little, the ending of the track actually does kind of hurt. It's known to have a bad ending, but the whole start of it, it's just very flowy and it's like, woo, wee, it feels like a water slide. It's really fun. Whistler, it's like a, oh, oh, I'm, okay, I'm hitting this wall. It's when you're learning, of course, Whistler can be your best friend once you really understand it and understand the pressures and where you are on the track, which takes hundreds of runs, hundreds of runs. My first season, I think I got 20. 20 runs in, 30, not even, you need like 80 to 100. It's all about volume because after each run, you're taking notes on where you were, how you felt, what you need to do. You know, you have a visual of the track. For me, when I first started, I used to write down left or right, you know, which way the corners were going, which way I needed to make sure I had my steers applied. And then once you get really good at the sport, you can really start to learn how to understand the pressures relating to your body mechanics everyone's different with how they're facing different pressures and you can learn from other sliders too by at what did you do in this corner because it's not working for me this way and you kind of take pieces here and there from different athletes and make it work for yourself and then once you get even more experience it's about the speed how do i get faster which is crazy because you know when you're first doing it you're just trying to survive <laughs> just make it down the track. It was so funny. Like some people I trained with, they're like, oh, my time wasn't here. And I was like, I am not fixated on time. I just want to like, I'm a technical person. I want to know how I feel and how I feel on a track is more important to me than speed when I'm first learning, because that's what's going to make me execute at a higher level down the road. And that is my pitching mentality. It's It's got to be progressive. And, and it's even how I coach. We get these kids who come in with their parents and their parents are like, well, I want my kids to throw 60 kilometers an hour. And I'm like, yeah, it'll happen. But there's so many other aspects to their development that they need to work on to get there. So let's focus on this first and the speed will come. And that's the same approach that I brought to my sliding experience was speed will come. My times will cut down once I learn certain skill sets and apply it to my sliding. So what is next for you and for the Malta Bobsled Skeleton Federation? That's a good question. 
I've been working with the Maltese Olympic Committee. I, I We haven't had time to solidify the season financially. You know, I need to show my receipts. I keep tabs on everything I spent, all my expenses, coaching fees, equipment fees, you name it. So I created a spreadsheet. I also created a budget forecast on how much the quad was going to cost. The Maltese Olympic Committee was extremely helpful in throwing some extra funding my way to support me in the Olympic journey. I definitely got short in funds towards the end of the season, just because Europe's expensive, COVID was adding up. And I ended up having a car theft at the beginning of season, which kind of took a bit of my funding. I I didn't plan for those whoopsie moments. (laughs) So that was unfortunate. But I mean, I still stuck to budget quite rigidly. And, And then it was sponsorships, like I had a sponsorship fall through, which wasn't, it was pretty well set in stone but these things happen and it's something that you learn as as an athlete in the sport and especially realizing this sport is heavily geared towards those sponsorships beyond the little funding top-ups that you get from the IBSF and and your own committee so that is one thing that I'm looking to work on is the sponsorships piece I also don't want to be the only athlete in the sport so it's about connecting with them and saying you know seeing how we get more athletes involved through virtual clinics. I'm looking to do some sort of advertisement through the IBSF to say that we're looking to recruit. My goal would be to see athletes compete in the 2030 games. I think that's two quads away. It's enough time to connect younger athletes to the different initiatives that are available in the sport through the small nations development opportunities at different tracks. So Lake Placid and that was a big piece why I moved to as to why I moved to Montreal. Lake Placid is only two hours from me. That was supposed to be my home track, not Whistler. <laughs> so, so that was another cost added to my whole experience, my whole plan. I had a car. I could have easily just drove down, taken some ice time. It's one of the best tracks to learn on as well because it's a driver's track. It can get just as fast as Whistler, but it's a little bit more technical. And that technical experience can really, really help you on a lot of the European tracks because there's a lot of features that that track has that are easy for you to take away. Whistler is just known to be fast and aggressive and you just learn how to take speed. Those are the differences between those tracks. But yeah, the small nations development programs typically are stationed either at Eagles in in Austria Lake Placid is typically where they have it in North America. Park City is another great track where you can get exposure to learning to slide. So my next steps would be, I would love to compete at the World Championships. I don't want to be a a one and done kind of person. I was hoping obviously to qualify, but knowing that how challenging it was going to be, that dream started to dwindle as I started the season in terms of seeing how challenging it was going to be. And just, I was kind of relying on putting out my best self on the tracks and just waiting for the unknowns to play my way. Cause that also does happen in an Olympic season. So I would like to attend the world championships, which are next year in St. Moritz. It's one of my favorite tracks. It's the most beautiful track in the world. It's outdoor or it's man-made and it's outside. It's outdoor. It's natural, natural ice. And it's just as important as the Olympics, I think, when it comes to a world championship. So that would be a really great experience. And then if there's progress in my own development and there's improvements, then I I will consider Milan. 
but there's a lot of things in my life that I need to make sure are still put forward before I make those decisions. But whether I go forward with it or take a back seat and help on the development side, that is something I'd be happy to do. You know, when you look at running a sport organization, a lot of organizers do this voluntarily anyways. And now that I know how to do the admin stuff, I was the one in the back end registering myself for races. I was registering my coaches, getting all their identifications, registering for all the tests that I had to do to be eligible to compete in the season. You have to do like your concussion protocol. There's some videos that the IBSF puts out. So there's a lot of funneling from the IF to the NOC when it comes to operating your your organization. And I shouldn't say NOC, it would be National Sport Organization. So I thought that was really cool to get that exposure with learning how an international federation operates, how their policies and procedures are implemented into your own sport organization and just how that information flows from top down. Excellent. Shannon, thank you so much. It's been great to catch up with you again, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Your story and the trying to build a federation, especially in a country that doesn't have much snow sport culture. That's, I mean, it's really cool. And it's, it's interesting to see just a, how much work goes into something like this and, and B like, you never know who it will inspire to do something that is meaningful to them or does something that builds up a community in some way. And it's just, it's a ton of work. So, hey, And that's what it is. You know, I don't look at this year as unsuccessful. It was, I put myself out there and it's now a chance to, yeah, see what can come of this. I'm in a place in my life where I'm just letting things come to me. Whether I, I do another quad or I just do the world championships, I'm not pressuring myself on those decisions. I will make plans, of course, but it is literally about giving opportunity. And that's what this whole thing has been about is just creating exposure. Someone might dream about it, might do it better than me. And you know, what's great about it is once I was in St. Ritz for the World Cup, I had tons of Maltese athletes, female athletes message me and they're like, this is so cool. Like, how do I get involved? And I want to create a sign-up sheet, do recruitment, but I want to make sure I connect with the Maltese Olympic Committee more on this piece because I want to make sure I'm bringing those cultural aspects that are important to the committee and also important to the sport. So those are some of the next tackles that I have, and I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Thank you so much, Shannon. You can follow Shannon on Insta at Escalia88. We will have a link to that in the show notes. The Federation's website is still in development, but you'll be able to find it through nocmalta.org. That sound means it's time for our history moment. All year long, we are celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Albertville 1992 Winter Games. Allison, it is your turn for a story. What do you have for me? Okay, I do not have figure skating this week. I decided to give it a rest. I have Jordan at the Winter Olympics. Whoa. Yes, the country of Jordan has only appeared once at the Winter Olympics at Albertville 1992. And... It was none other than luxury real estate developer, developer Mohammed Hadid, who is the ex-husband of Yolanda Hadid, who appears on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, the father of Bella and Gigi Hadid, who are famous models, 
And would you like to know what sport Mohammed competed at? <laughs> yes, because I am just I'm speechless when I when I saw Mohammed Hadid, I went, wait a second, the model's father? What? <laughs> he was a speed skier. <laughs> he basically did it as a lark. He was friends with other speed skiers. And they said, you should give this a shot. And he says he did it to bring some attention to Jordan, kind of like what Shannon was talking about, to bring more attention to sports in countries that don't normally have winter sports. He reached 118 miles an hour, but he did not reach the finals. So he technically does not have a finishing place because if you're not in the finals, you aren't placed. But he has continued to be involved in the Olympic movement to the extent that he had a lot to say recently on TMZ about the Russian ban. Oh. Yes, which he was very in favor of and says doesn't know why this didn't happen sooner because of doping. So he's very up on this information. Of course, as he was speaking, he could barely move his face because it is... <laughs> Open, which kind of made sense why he likes ski, speed skiing so much because it would blow its face back like a facelift. And another interesting thing was he was one of the oldest competitors in 1992. He was already 43 years old. That's incredible. Welcome to Shuklistan. It is time to check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests of the show that make up our country of Shuklistan. First off, congratulations to canoeist Andres Toro, who was named recipient of the Olympic and Paralympic Torch Award in recognition of outstanding service to the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic movements. Race walker Evan Dunphy won the Canadian national title in the 20K race walk with a time of 123.24. Sticking with Canada Track and Field Nationals, Ness Murby became the first openly trans athlete to compete in the Canadian Track and Field National Championships. He competed in men's discus paraambulatory and finished fourth. And Michelle Carter has announced her retirement from athletics. She placed eighth at the USA Track and Field Champs, and she did not make the world team. In a way, I'm very sad she's retiring, but in a way, I'm not because she is incredible like i just am excited to see what she does next she is not done that's for sure also at the usa track and field championships hammer thrower deanna price placed fourth she has a buy into world so we will see her compete in july mallory cumberford was part of the bronze winning four by 100 freestyle relay team at the fina world championships and also at the fina world championships reporter nick Cardi did his first poolside assignment for NBC doing live interviews for all eight days. If it's like your first time, do they throw you into the pool at the end <laughs> of the championships? I don't know. Sorry, Nick. Did I give somebody an idea? <laughs> and at USA Shooting Nationals, Ginny Thrasher took 13th in women's air rifle and the bronze medal in women's small bore rifle. Oh, we have some update on our modern pentathlon novella. So the Modern Pentathlon, the Federation, the UIPM, they are testing obstacle course racing, as we mentioned. Listener Meredith posted some pictures in our Facebook group of what they have tested, if you want to take a look at that. Uh, If 
the obstacles look a little familiar to you and you are a fan of Ninja Warrior or Sasuke, as they call it in Japan, it's because they used actual sets from Tokyo Broadcasting Systems, <laughs> Sasuke or Ninja Warrior shows, because the there are some editions uh, of it in countries in Europe, so they could bring the sets in from there. And so they had wall flip and parallel pipes and, and tire swing, and they had a warped wall kind of thing. Ninja competition obstacle course racing is one of two types that they're testing. So that's what's happening to replace riding so far. There was, I would say, mixed reaction. I think the modern pentathletes realized that this type of obstacle course racing takes a much different type of strength than they have. Because this ninja courses take a lot of upper body strength. And I don't think modern pentathletes had that same kind of upper body strength. Maybe they do, but... It's, it's different. different. Fencing and swimming are very specific upper body strength. It's, yes. I would think I'm not a fencer uh, or, or much of a swimmer, but it's more of a long muscle versus a short twitch muscle. It's kind of that flowing strength as opposed to if I don't catch this beam, I'm going to fall 20 feet in the air from the air. <laughs> so kind of a different pressure there. Ah, uh, we've got news from Paris 2024. I had a dream about Paris 2024 last night. Really? What was it? It was, I was lost on the Parisian subway. <laughs> did you have two volunteers on either side of you helping you I, out? I did not, but I did have sort of these monsters from Stranger Things. So you know I was watching Stranger Things yesterday and getting ready for the show, and it combined in my sleep. <laughs> well, the IOC executive board had a meeting last week. So we have big news for Paris and big news for Milan Cortina. The big news from Paris is that, once again, the IOC is not allowing the International Boxing Association to run the boxing tournament at Paris 2024. Now, this is a big deal because the international federations run all the competitions. The IOC does not necessarily do anything in that realm, nor does the organizing committee, although in Tokyo, the organizing committee was suddenly tasked with taking over the boxing competition as well. So Paris 2024, both the qualifications and the tournament are going to be managed by not the IBA. I'm not quite sure who's managing them. Because the IOC didn't necessarily say that they were. Maybe t Paris 2024. Th your boyfriend, Kit McConnell, did say they had learned some lessons from Tokyo. You think, Kit? <laughs> At this point, like, Pierre and Claude from the coffee shop down the street is going to are going to end up running this competition. <laughs> oh, but he was he looked like he was so tired of talking about boxing again. And... Pardon the pun, but they are really on the ropes for 2028. So they're not on the program. I would not be surprised if they are out of, of LA 2028. As they should be. We can't keep doing this. It's sad because boxing has a pretty big following in the U.S. And it's an important sport in the Americas region as well. And it's kind of sad that 
the IBA can't manage itself very well. But we'll see what happens. I, I don't have high hopes because the LA program is going to get announced fairly soon. Paris 2024 and the French Ministry of Culture have launched a cultural Olympiad in relation with the games. So there's going to be a lot of cultural events this summer. And over the next couple of years, they are also putting out a call for proposals for future events. So you can find out more about that. We'll have a link to the website in our show notes. And then Inside the Games had an exclusive interview with Andrew Parsons, who said that the International Paralympic Committee is considering innovative options for the Paralympics opening ceremony. Andrew really liked the idea of the athletes parade along the Seine, but said it likely couldn't be replicated for the Paralympics just because of the logistics of the accessibility and all of those issues. But he likes the outside the box thinking. I hope somebody was able to give him a hug. <laughs> Maybe that's how they got the exclusive. We will meet with you in person and give you a hug, Andrew. Ah, <laughs> uh, Milan Cortina 2026. So this much is not their fault. Well, oh, later on, they're going to have stuff that's their fault. So <laughs> absolutely, but this one is not the Italians' fault. Okay, so the sports program has been finalized. Again, plan on hearing more gender equity than ever before. Quotas is going to be 2,900 athletes at these games, for the Olympics at least. <clears throat> New event will be ski mountaineering. They will have a men's and a women's sprint events, and then a mixed relay. They have added in a mixed team event for skeleton, which is kind of cool. Women's doubles, luge, will have its own event, finally. And then for freestyle skiing, we're going to have men's and women's dual moguls, which I'm kind of excited about because that's just going to make it even more bananas as an event. <laughs> Anything that involves people racing down a mountain and getting slapped around seems to excite you. Well, yeah, I guess so. I, I mean, I've always been like that demolition derby type person. <laughs> So, but that's that. I think I watched a little bit of Dual Moguls online just to see what that was like. I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be fun just because it's so fast and so unpredictable. Okay. And let's point out that it is dual, D U A L, not D U E L, which could also be exciting. <laughs> and then, other good news is that in ski jumping, women will now have a large hill event as well. So now they have to events the men have two events were on equal footing there one event that was taken out is the alpine mixed team parallel event which i know i know you like your mixed teams so that's that's a little rough for you i'm okay with it because i'm much happier with the ski jumping getting that second event for women because that just never made any sense to me women's doubles is fantastic the other big decision that was made no women's Nordic combined. If you listened to our interview with Annika Malasinski last week, she was really hopeful that it would be included and it just, it wasn't. And the shocking thing is that the men's event might be out for 2030. And the only reason they're keeping it on is because so many athletes have already been working towards 2026 as a goal. And to take that away from them would be 
undue punishment. I mean, it's one thing to pull the Alpine mixed team replay race because nobody is training specifically for that one event. Those athletes are going to be in other events. But if you pull an entire sport basically out with so few years to go, that would really be kind of cruel. Exactly. And they said that the issue with Nordic combined is that too few countries are participating in it and it's too Eurocentric. And that is true, I would say. The other problem is the sport has low viewership and engagement numbers when it comes to the Olympics. The interesting thing is that listener John in the Facebook group pulled together some really interesting numbers. He crunched some numbers and said, really, biathlon is the one that has less representation on the medal stand. Because that was another thing. Representation on the podium for Nordic Combined is very Eurocentric. But listener John found out that the number of medals that have gone to non-Europeans, Nordic Combined, 11 out of 120 medal opportunities. So that's 9.2% have gone to non-Europeans. Luge, 5.2% of their opportunities. Cross-country, 2% of their opportunities. Only 11 medals out of 544 opportunities have gone to non-Europeans. Biathlon, one medal out of 287 possibilities for 0.3%. Wow. How I read the decision on women's Nordic Combined and Nordic Combined in general was it wasn't just the medal opportunities, it was participation as well. Yeah, yeah, that there's just not enough countries coming in. Right. And when you look at something like biathlon especially, it is not one or two European countries. You basically have every country in Europe who's got a biathlete out there and you see a lot of different, even though it's Europe, you do see a lot of different European countries on the medal stand. Yes. And you do see representation, like over time you have representation, solid representation from Canada, us, Japan has been in the games for a long, or in biathlon for a long time. China's been in, we'll see how much they stay in going forward, but they have been in and they do rather well for a country that doesn't have participation. I think biathlon's thing is that they have a rabid fan base. Right. Those World Cup races are huge. They're Super Bowl-like events in some of these places. So to pull this out of the Olympic program would be devastating to those fans and take away a whole fan base from the Olympics, which would make no sense. Right. And I'm sure Nordic Combine has its share of errands, but I don't think it's as spread out as it could be, because I, I have a feeling that they may have looked at numbers if they have like an Olympic Channel equivalent or NBC probably shares numbers about what's on Peacock in terms of viewership. And you'd look at Nordic Combined versus Biathlon and and. I would imagine that some of those numbers are just very different. So Nordic Combined's got its work cut out for them. They, of course, are very disappointed all all around. It is disappointing to have this kind of put in your face. But, you know, i got to say, the IOC just sounds... And granted, they move so slow. 
but they are really like we have had it up to here with a lot of sports and we are just about done with all of you papa t-bock has had enough <laughs> he's putting you all in the corner you all have a timeout and you're going to have to show you have learned your lesson mm-hmm. some more tough news milan cortina has no money color me shocked there's an Italian publication called Il Fatto Quotidiano. They have noted that the committee has been in the red for two years. They have forecast that they would be able to get 550 million euros in domestic sponsors, which would be about 35% of their total budget. They don't have any contracts signed yet. And the IOC is going to contribute about 39% of the budget. And they will also get ticket revenues, but you know, those aren't coming right now. Those will be a while in coming. Don't know what's going to happen. Don't know if the government will be in there to bail them out, but we shall see. The same news outlet also noted that the Cortina mayor just got defeated in an election. And he was a big proponent of the games. The new mayor of the area was is going to be Gianluca Lorenzi. And he said he would, and I've got this via Google Translate. So he said he'd be looking at the Olympic bobsled track for sure. This will be interesting to see what happened. On the 5th of June, a bunch of environmentalists climbed Giao Pass in Italy up in the Dolomites. And they wanted to raise the Olympic alarm because there's a bunch of issues to be resolved, they say. There's the bobsled run, which is going to cost... 61 million euros and they now predict that it's going to have a 30 percent price increase from inflation and also a budget deficit of 400,000 euros a year for the next 20 years and another problem is the olympic village that will be in fiames which should be temporary, but apparently requires what Google Translate says is urbanization works. So I imagine there's some infrastructure stuff that needs to happen for this. Shocking. Who won't be lending them any money? Who? The Swedes. (laughs) And they're all sitting there saying, you could have avoided all of this and had your IKEA flat-packed Olympics if you had voted with your head and not your heart. Yes, And given the fact that we've had COVID, there is a war in Europe and inflation everywhere, the IOC would have done better to vote with their head at that point. Thankfully, we have this new Bid City Commission. So hopefully that makes it a little bit more... sustainable is not the word but hopefully it makes it a little bit more practical in the choice of host city new norm we're counting on you oh my gosh you better have that pocket protector in at all times norm that is your protection against the heart it's like a heart shield the pocket protector (laughs) norm better get new glasses make sure their prescription is up to date because this is going to be a rough go looking at this budget (laughs) Speaking of the host city commission, we have 2030 news. The Spanish bid is out. They cannot get along the two regions that were going to be in the Pyrenees. They they just can't get make it anything work, so they have pulled out. The USOPC went over to Lausanne 
and they had a meeting with them. <clears throat> They've also had, I said in on a US OPC media call, and they said they're ready for when the IOC wants them. That could be 2030. It could be 2034. So Suzanne Lyons, who is the outgoing president of the board, was leading the call. And she was pretty practical about this and fairly forthcoming. And she said, look, we've got the games in 2028. Having back-to-back -back games in America would be tough from a sponsorship thing, also tough from a global perspective. Because, hey, guess what? Not everybody's happy with the U.S. government pulling the diplomatic boycott of Beijing. Hmm. So, okay. We got that. They're not necessarily not thrilled with the Salt Lake bid. I think the Salt Lake bid is probably very well put together and very easy to put into place and activate. It, it's just that the government in this country is not appreciated by everyone around the world and the optics of having two games in a row in the U.S. would be an issue. So I know there was a little gossip gossip talking about doing the same thing for 30-34 that they did for 24 and 28. So they awarded Paris and L.A. at the same time. And now the rumor is we're going to award possibly Vancouver and Salt Lake at the same time. Could be. Don't know about Sapporo either. So we do have three cities still who are fairly far along in their bid process, who have things fairly thought out and some plans. Nobody's been invited yet to that targeted dialogue stage, which is the next one. They're all in still that first conversational stage. In the fall will come, hey, we will invite you to targeted dialogue. And then the next few months will be the big push for a decision. So they're not Instagram official yet. <laughs> We're not exclusive. <laughs> Still dating around. So we shall see. Uh, we would like to give a big shout out to our Patreon patrons who keep our flame alive. Find out more about patronage at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. And if ongoing patronage is not for you, you can also look at flamealivepod.com slash support for several options for one-time donations. So that is going to do it for this week. Let us know your thoughts about this week's episode. You can get in touch with us by email at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208 352-6348 that's 208 flame it our social handle is at flame alive pod and be sure to join the keep the flame alive podcast group on facebook next week is the start of the world games which is a, another global multi-sport event that has ioc support so we're going to learn a little bit more about them and talk with an athlete who competed at the last world games so thank you so much for listening and until next time keep the flame alive <laughs>